Listener Production. Hello, Antoinette Latouf with you. And today's briefing, well, to be frank, we'd rather not be doing. And to be fair, it has been months since we have had a COVID-specific briefing topic, but there's no avoiding reality. And the reality is we are facing another big wave. Case numbers are now at 30,000 a day, and that's with super low testing numbers. The COVID death toll has reached 10,000 and 7,000 from this year alone. So this year has already doubled the first two years of the pandemic. The virus has better ability in binding to proteins in the lung lining. And that could mean that you'd see more people ending up with more severe symptoms. So it begs the question, is it as bad the second time? Is the vaccine still effective against the new subvariants? Should we reintroduce restrictions or does it show there was no point having them in the first place? Tom and Katrina will ask all the questions about the current COVID wave in our briefing. But that's after today's headlines with Eleanor Harrison-Dengate. The UK government could be beginning to collapse. Overnight, two of Boris Johnson's senior ministers, his treasurer and health secretary, have both resigned, saying they had lost confidence in the British Prime Minister. Yes, yeah, so Treasurer Rishi Sunak says he can no longer serve as Chancellor because his approach has become, and this is a quote, fundamentally too different. And Health Secretary Sajid Javid in a statement said he could no longer continue in good conscience. The resignations came after Johnson apologised for appointing senior lawmaker Chris Pincher to a plum government job, and that's despite complaints of sexual misconduct being made against him. If I had my time again, I would think back on it and recognise that he wasn't going to learn any lesson and he wasn't going to to change. So this is happening just weeks after Johnson survived a no-confidence motion following Partygate, which was when a series of parties were held at Downing Street while the rest of the country was in lockdown. Almost 150 of his own MPs voted against their own leader. And Eleanor, both the Health Secretary and Treasurer, obviously that's two of the government's most senior cabinet ministers, they had formally publicly supported Mr Johnson during all the scandal over Partygate, but have said, no, enough's enough. Good news for 50,000 Sydney residents. Flood levels at the Hawkesbury and the Peon Rivers are finally falling, but flood dangers are not over just yet. It's as the East Coast low that's been responsible for the 700 millimetre deluge over the last four days is expected to move north today. Although a forecast of strong winds and pockets of heavy rain means residents have been warned not to drop their guard. Over the last 24 hours, the SES has carried out more than 50 flood rescues, mostly from people who have driven into floodwaters. People on the east coast are doing it really tough at the moment. And it is clear that the crisis is not over yet. PM Anthony Albanese there, back from Europe, and he'll be visiting the affected areas today. And yes, he has been defending himself against um, comments from the opposition, accusing him, um, Eleanor, of spending too much time away during this latest disaster. Just like Hawaii, right? Yeah, well, that's the thing. (laughs) Hawaii was trending on Twitter and I was like, what's going on in Hawaii? And it was everybody, well, you know, coalition diehards comparing Hawaii to Albanese being in Europe, um, chatting with the Ukrainian Prime Minister, Um, which... Cleaning up ScoMo's messes in France? Exactly. 
So, yeah, I just don't think the two are related. 200,000 households could be going into mortgage stress after the Reserve Bank hiked interest rates again. We understand that this is really challenging news for Australians who are already doing it tough. Treasurer Jim Chalmers there. And most people who have a mortgage will probably say that they feel stressed, but that's not what mortgage stress technically means. It's when household spending is more than 30% of their pre-tax income on their home loan repayments. So yesterday, the RBA increased rates by 50 basis points, up to 1.35%. It's the highest the cash rate's been since May 2019 and the third rate rise in just three months. Yes, and this move is to counter inflation after record low rates bolstered the economy during the pandemic. So if the rate rise is passed on in full... Borrowers with a $500,000 loan over 30 years could see repayments increase by $350 a month. That's on top of an extra $207. So that $207 is due to the other two rate rises earlier this year. And some people may be asking, you know, why is this happening? Why have we had three rate rises in as many months? Um, A few reasons, very strong global inflation, the war in Ukraine, high demand for goods. So it's an attempt to curb that inflation. So you probably have noticed things that are going up like fuel and food and materials. Um, But Eleanor, it's also to balance the COVID stimulus, which we really needed. You know, at the time we needed to increase economic activity, make sure people who were stood down um, still had money to spend. So now it's a bit of a correction. So I believe to date, I'm no economist, I am digging deeply into my year 10 economics (laughs) studies. Um, But from where I'm sitting and from what I've heard, these are proportionate measures. Um, It might be a little bit tough, but it's meant to be. Well, apparently also the floods uh, in Sydney are also affecting ag prices and grocery prices. Mm. So that's another factor. Police have charged 12 members of a close-knit religious group overnight with the murder of an eight-year-old girl in Toowoomba in January. In my nearly 40 years of policing, I haven't been faced with a matter like this. Uh, As stated, it's a very complex investigation and I'm not aware of a a similar event uh, in Queensland, let alone Australia. Detective Acting Superintendent Gary Watts there. So police will allege the child suffered from diabetes and was denied medical treatment for almost a week. Those charged allegedly witnessed her deterioration and didn't take action. Her parents have already been charged with murder, torture and failing to provide necessities of life. And not a great deal is known about this religious group other than the fact it's small, it's part of a local community and not affiliated to a church. Nick Kyrgios will face court in Canberra next month over assault charges. He's accused of grabbing his former partner last December. So this offence carries a maximum two-year jail term. And the Aussie faces Christian Garin for a spot in the Wimbledon semis tonight. It's the second time he has made the final eight. That's it from us. Next up, Tom and Katrina are going to bring you the latest on COVID in an episode we really wished we didn't have to bring you. Hey guys, Katrina Blau is here. Well, Tom, I don't know about you, but I've got quite a few friends who got COVID either late last year or at a New Year's Eve party, which I know a lot of people got COVID at New Year's Eve celebrations, including me. But they're actually getting COVID again. And these are people who are double vaxxed and some of them are even boosted. So how are they going with it the second time? Is it worse or or less severe than last time? 
Yeah, you know what? A lot of them are saying that they cruised through it the first time. They didn't feel too bad. They felt like they had a bit of a cold. But this time around, they're, yeah, they're getting pretty smashed by it. They're feeling a lot worse with the second infection than they did with the first. Yeah, well, there are new subvariants now, BA4 and BA5. Um, and they're calling them sneaky strains because they're better at evading immunity and vaccines. Yeah, so health authorities estimate there are likely tens of thousands of Australians who are into their second or even their third infections right now. Imagine having it for the third time. Yeah, well, it raises so many variants as we hit another wave of COVID, as we said earlier. Not an episode we really wanted to bring you, but we feel like it's pretty important right now. Catherine Bennett, is the Deakin University Chair of Epidemiology. Thanks so much for joining us, Catherine. What do you think the real case numbers are? Do you reckon that even though official figures put us at about 30,000 a day, that we're actually a fair bit closer to that January peak, which clipped at about 100,000? Well, we actually don't know. And we don't know what we actually had in January either. Back a few months ago, at the start of April, I was estimating we were probably seeing around... 40% or so of cases. So it's just really difficult to know because, of course, now we have repeat infections. That may lower the likelihood that someone's going to report their infection again if they feel like, well, we've had one, it's just another one, I know what's going on. It's really hard to know. And that's why, in fact, if you're tracking case numbers, you can be really off the mark, I think. You know, we've seen situations in Victoria, for example, where our case numbers didn't move around very much. But, you know, since middle May, our number of people dying went up by about 50% from 10 a day to an average of about 15. So it's hard to see what's going on necessarily, but that's why we're now looking at trends and, and not really trying to guesstimate the numbers. You can't do that unless you go out and actively test people and see what's going on. But is your sense that this wave is fairly significant somewhere in the realms of what we experienced in January, somewhere lower than that? Roughly, where do you sense that when you interpret all those different metrics? Look, I do think it's probably is lower. We saw that initial wave, which was astonishing when we first Mm. had to deal with the BA1. In Western Australia, they hadn't had BA1, so they had a delayed opening, but they were hit by BA2 and also saw you know, this incredible climb of cases compared to anything they had seen before. In the subsequent variants, we do see a, a push-up in the case numbers, and that translates then to hospitalisations and sadly deaths. And I think that's what we're going to see again, something that with BA4 and 5 now on the rise in Victoria, they're they're over 40% of the wastewater sampling at the moment, that we're going to see something that actually keeps the numbers high, pushes them higher, but not a, 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 a separate identifiable peak, but these rolling waves of challenge really in trying to get through winter without seeing yet another subvariant keep our numbers high or push them higher. Okay, so tell us about this subvariant BA5. Is it going to become the dominant variant here in Australia? It seems to be in other parts of the world. Is it more or less severe than previous variants and is it more contagious? Well, it's certainly more contagious. There has been some talk about BA5 having a different potential in terms of illness in that it's been described as sticky. So the virus has better ability in binding to proteins in the lung lining so the lower respiratory tract, and that could mean that you'd see more people ending up with more severe symptoms, particularly lower respiratory tract infections. 
So there is a risk that that could be um, associated with this. So along with potentially having more cases out there, we might have a few more people out of every 100 people infected that actually has a more problematic infection with it. Overall, they're saying not a big difference, but BA5 um, over and above BA4, that's the one that they're watching because it just might make that difference with the number of infections we have that we start to see more pressure on our hospitals associated with these COVID infections. That's what I'm hearing from friends of mine who are getting reinfected. They got COVID start of the year and now they're getting it again. Some of them are saying the first time wasn't so bad. This one has really floored them. And I know there's been some studies done, but I guess there's not enough um, analysis of that data yet to say whether or not this one's worse than, than the last time. There's a few things that can happen. One is that there might just be a problem with having repeat infections, you might have more severe illness. It might be just each time it's luck of the draw, what sort of infecting dose you get, how much virus you were exposed to in your first exposure that leads to an infection can lead to a different type of illness. And then on top of that, the variants themselves. So I think there's a message in that though, even if we don't quite know what's going on, that actually what what experience you have with one infection doesn't necessarily predict what will happen next time. And so it's still worth avoiding infections. And the other part of that is some work that's now being talked about, and we'll probably see more of this over the next couple of months, is what the risks are of having multiple infections over one infection versus no infections in terms of long COVID. So the risk it places you at for other complications down the track. So does having had BA1 give you any immunity against getting BA5? Probably not if you had BA1 back in January. And that is partly because Omicron, for whatever reason, doesn't actually stimulate your immune system to help you fight off Omicron. You, you get more resistant to Delta or Alpha or other variants, but Omicron itself, not so much, which is really interesting. That actually makes this a particularly persistent variant because, you know, we don't get better at fighting off Omicron, even though it's in our community and we're infected with it, and sometimes multiple times. So the combination of time since BA1, but also the shift in these subvariants means that it's always just getting beyond our immune response in a way that still protects us from serious illness. We've still got enough protection there and infection probably boosts that a bit, but not against infection itself, unfortunately. So you probably not, don't have the same risk as someone who's never been infected, but at the same time, it's, you know, people are so exposed now, the virus is everywhere, that, um, yeah, sadly, a lot of this is now driven by reinfections. And does that mean then that we thought that Omicron might be the pathway out of the pandemic, but does that mean that perhaps it's not that sort of silver bullet that initially we thought it was? Well, it really depends what Omicron does, but you're right. You know, the, the idea that it might be a very fast but quite benign variant actually hasn't proven true because, of course, it's evolving itself. And so it just keeps getting faster. So that means it's still persisting in the population. We're not seeing a massive wave and then out the other side. So that's definitely true. And we also don't think it's necessarily less virulent, less disease-causing than the early strains. It's just that we've evolved with our immunity, thankfully. We might be seeing less other variants because it's sort of selecting for itself in the way it um, boosts our immune system generally, but not 
specifically against Omicron. So it's probably favouring Omicron subvariants at the moment, but we don't want to see those variants get even more contagious, even more immune escape, because with that, we could see more severe illness, just as if the virus itself would evolve to cause more severe illness. So too, if it really does start to escape our immune system, we become a bit more vulnerable because our existing immunity doesn't really protect us as well against it. So we're not there yet, but that's the concern that this long wave of all the Omicron subvariants could in fact, you know, still take us into an area where we have less protection and we're a bit more vulnerable. So it all raises the the question on what our settings and our responses and policies should be around this. And it's just bizarre to think that last year we were prepared to lock down our two biggest cities for months on end to prevent the loss of life. Yet this year we're losing thousands of lives, but our hospitals are coping and there's no real appetite to tank those strong measures again. So you can, I guess you could look at this two ways. You could go, well, we should be reintroducing those measures this time if we still care about those lives, or maybe it wasn't worth it last year. It's a really good observation. I think I'm hearing that a lot in the community as well. But the reality is the last two years were really about trying to get the vaccine rolled out. And what we saw with Delta was a much higher death rate. And that death rate impacted people across younger adult age groups. Thankfully, not many very young, but it still did impact people across all age groups. And without vaccination or prior infection, we were really vulnerable. And we did see the numbers who were reported in ICU, for example, being at a level which was twice or more what we're seeing today, a lot more than that, actually. You know, we, we were seeing Australia-wide something like, you know, an average 300 people in ICU, and today we continue to see somewhere just over 100. So it was more severe disease for us because we, we didn't have the protection of vaccine. What we had in place before, which barely worked with Delta, the contact tracing and the, and the lockdown, mm. if you remember lockdown, um, for a long time there, in both New South Wales and Victoria, where we had the virus in the community, we were in strict lockdown and case numbers, well, they were still going up. It took the combination of really high vaccination rates and lockdown to really bring the Delta case numbers down. And then if you look at something like Omicron, five times faster and every subvariant faster again, lockdown wouldn't work in the same way. That was Catherine Bennett, Chair of Epidemiology at Deakin Uni. What'd you make of that, Katrina? It's left me feeling a bit uncertain, to be honest, because I honestly was one of those people who thought, Omicron's here, it's not as bad. We're starting to get less severe illnesses from this virus, so we're on our way out. And it's so sneaky and ever-changing, and I just, <laughs> I'm just like, come on, why can't this be over? So I guess it's left me feeling, I don't know, a bit uncertain. Well, it's interesting she said that there'd be no point going to those hardcore policy settings anyway now with how transmissible it is. So what choice do we really have? Like you can tank a bit of precaution on a personal level, but really that's about it now. And thankfully, yeah. um, hospitalisation rates are, are much lower than they were last year. So yes, it's a risk. Yes, the subvariants might be worse for some people, but we still don't yeah. know that across the population. But we have no choice but to get on with our lives. And I personally think that's a good thing. Definitely. And it's something that I just guess we're going to have to live with for a lot longer than any of us thought. 
Coming up tomorrow, as part of NAIDOC Week, we look at this really great initiative that's really changing the lives of many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Listener.